Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland. One of the biggest decisions that then-presidential candidate Joe Biden needed to make during the campaign last year was who he would pick to be his second-in-command, his vice president. Kamala knows how to govern. She knows how to make the hard calls. Last summer, Biden announced that Kamala Harris, the California senator, would be his running mate. I, Kamala Davy Harris, solemnly swear that I will support and defend Still in her 50s, Harris represents a younger generation of leaders. And in picking the first Black and South Asian American woman to ever take such a role, Biden was hoping in part to appeal to a wider swath of the electorate. But since taking the oath of office in January, Harris has rarely been in the spotlight, save for drawing the ire of some Democrats and all Republicans who are not particularly happy with her response to two of the issues she has been tasked with, voting rights and the migrant crisis on the southern border. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Harris was front and center when it came to campaigning in 2020. Now she very much sits in the background. And it got me thinking, is this how it's supposed to be? What exactly is the role of the vice president of the United States? To get some answers, I spoke to Lawrence Haas, foreign policy columnist and former communications director for Vice President Al Gore under Bill Clinton. I started off by asking him what those first few months of working for the VP was like back in the 1990s. Actually, I came into the administration about two years in and originally to work uh, for President Clinton. I was the communications director at the Office of Management and Budget, which is an executive agency. So I was about three years at OMB, and I had gotten to know the vice president quite a bit, and I got to know him personally, and uh, then he asked me to come over. And it's a whole different thing when you work for the vice president. You know, it's a different principal figure. You're specifically working for the vice president, and the vice president has a specific role in service to the president. So you sort of have to reorient yourself a bit. I think that that is such a good point that touches on something that we wanted to talk about, which is that when you were working for Vice President Gore, did you really feel like you were working directly for him and really trying to carry out his message? Or did it feel like you were still in pretty close contact with Clinton's advisors and you were more so kind of taking uh, some messaging tips from the president's office? Well, there can be conflicts 
between the president and the vice president and their teams in the way that you are asking the question. But I have to tell you, in my experience, there really wasn't that distinction. Vice President Gore was very careful in making sure that there was no daylight between what he was saying and what the president of the United States was saying. He, in fact, used to refer to his audience as a constituency of one. The uh, distinction between what the president would say and what the vice president would say in this case did not begin until Vice President Gore himself was running for president in 2000. And then the distinctions are very appropriate. He had the luxury of being able to be patient to serve Bill Clinton, and to know that eventually he would be the one on the stage running for the top office in the land. And in terms of the personal relationship between President Clinton and Vice President Gore, did it seem like they got along? Did it seem like they were friends or simply colleagues in an extremely important office? And On that note, do you think it's important for a president and a vice president to get along in order to work well together? Good afternoon. President Clinton uh, made a decision in choosing a running mate that he was going to send a very strong message to the country that a new generation was running for office. I said I wanted a vice president who would compliment me and my own experiences. Bill Clinton uh, is a baby boomer. Uh, Al Gore is a baby boomer. They are approximately the same age within a year or two of one another at the time uh, very young men. A father who, like me, loves his children and shares my hunger to turn this economy around, to change our country. And they also came from the same wing of the Democratic Party. So they knew one another very well. And yes, they did like one another going in. There were a lot of sort of side comments, winks and uh, smirks and things like that. And you can't fake that. Do presidents and vice presidents have to like one another? Well, I could conceive of a situation in which a relationship could be fully functional and the two principals involved don't like one another. But I will tell you that these are very high pressure jobs. And I think they were successful in part, at least, for the fact that they saw the world the same way. And they did, in fact, like spending time with one another. And pivoting to our current president, obviously, Biden and Barack Obama had a pretty famously chummy relationship. This also gives the internet one last chance to (laughs) talk about our bromance. Do you think that Biden is in some ways trying to recreate that relationship with Kamala Harris? And if so, do you think that that will help the current administration be more successful? Well, you know, the Biden-Harris relationship uh, did not begin when Biden chose Harris. Uh, Kamala Harris uh, served as the attorney general, I believe, in California. And uh, at the time, uh, one of Joe Biden's sons uh, served as attorney general of Delaware. So they spent a lot of time working on issues that affected 
all the states across the country, and they were famously chummy and very effective uh, with one another. And Joe Biden got to know Kamala Harris, I believe, first that way. I do believe that Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris in part because he liked her as a human being. I think that that will help the two of them uh, be more effective with one another. So as you said, Larry, Bill Clinton and Al Gore shared many similarities when they uh, went into the White House together. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are two pretty different political figures. And when they ran against each other in the presidential race, they uh, clashed notably uh, during the first Democratic debate. And it's personal. And it, I was actually very it was hurtful. Harris went after Biden first passed opposition to busing, which was a method to racially integrate schools by busing in students from neighboring school districts. So how do a president and a vice president who have differing views on certain issues work out those issues? Did you ever see an example of that when you were working for Vice President Gore? So the um, it is not unusual to have a president uh, once the person gets the nomination of the party, choose as the running mate someone who ran against that person in the caucuses and primaries. So Ronald Reagan uh, chose the first George Bush. The issue is whether the president relies on the vice president to tell the president what that person does not want to hear to be the honest broker, to say privately, I know you want to do this, but here's why I think you're wrong. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And I believe that, well, I know for a fact that Bill Clinton uh, relied on Al Gore for that. I believe that Barack Obama relied on Joe Biden for that. And I believe that Joe Biden is relying on Kamala Harris for that. And if you're the president and you can have a situation in which the vice president tells you what you don't want to hear privately while 100% supporting you publicly, you've got the best deal of all. And I do believe that Biden's trying to have that with Harris. Next few weeks, tweeting Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution, giving states a chance to. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are also in the very interesting situation that they are coming into office on the heels of Donald Trump and Mike Pence, who had a very, to use a polite word, unique relationship as president and vice president. Can you talk a little bit about how Trump and Pence's relationship differed from other recent presidents and vice presidents? Donald Trump was so different in so many ways that it's not surprising that his relationship with his vice president was so different in so many ways. I don't believe that Donald Trump wanted to hear criticism from anyone, publicly or privately. I do not believe that Mike Pence had that kind of relationship with him. And certainly when Mike Pence upheld our constitution by presiding over the counting of the electoral votes on that brutal day of January 6th, Donald Trump has not spoken to Mike Pence and has criticized him repeatedly and brutally for somehow 
betraying him. So that is a reflection of the fact that they did not have from the start the kind of healthy relationship that presidents and vice presidents should have privately. When it comes to constitutional duties, they're pretty few and far between. The Constitution says that the vice president shall, quote, be president of the Senate, but shall have no vote except in the event of a tie, which has happened a few times this year because of the evenly divided Senate. And then after that, it's really only mentioned a handful of times. But one of the main roles of the vice president, arguably the most important role, is that they will become president in the event of, to quote the Constitution, death, resignation or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office. Now, obviously, no vice president ever actually plans for that horrible event to happen. But do you think in some way all vice presidents prepare for the possibility of stepping in as commander in chief. Do you think that Al Gore had to mentally prepare for that possibility when he took on his job? I do believe that they all have to prepare for it. And I do believe that Al Gore in particular had it on his mind. You know, one of the ways that they prepare is by having a president who brings them in to the key things that the president is doing. You know, Franklin Roosevelt famously uh, used to make decisions uh, largely by himself. And Harry Truman, when he came in and served briefly as vice president before FDR uh, died, and this is in early 1945, Harry Truman had only met with FDR twice while he was serving as vice president. And he did not even know about the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb that eventually ended World War II when the United States dropped the bomb uh, twice over Japan. Bill Clinton was much different with Al Gore. He brought him into everything. And so he helped Al Gore prepare himself for at least the possibility that he might have to step in in case something happened to Bill Clinton. Because the Constitution does not provide many details on uh, what the vice presidency means in a on a day to day basis, it's it's allowed vice presidents to sort of craft their role in the in whatever way they want to. So for Kamala Harris, for example, she has been tasked with tackling two really difficult and expansive problems. The first is uh, stemming the tide of migration to the U.S.-Mexican border. And the second is strengthening voting rights. So first of all, how do you think she has done with those two tasks so far? And what advice might you offer her as she continues to tackle those really, really difficult issues? Well, as you mentioned, she has been tasked. So it's not as if she's able to completely pull them out of you know, thin air and then just go do them. It, it is with the permission of the president of the United States. Now, having said that, those are both terribly, terribly thorny issues. So let's take them one at a time. Voting rights. We're not telling people how to vote. And frankly, this is not a Democratic or a Republican issue. This is an American issue. Well, we have a system here in which most of the authority for how elections are run actually resides at the state and local level. The federal government and obviously the Supreme Court plays an important role, can set general parameters, but 
you know, voting rights tend to be a state by state battle. So that makes it pretty difficult for Kamala Harris to have a noticeable impact. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. With regard to immigration, another terribly, terribly thorny issue. You know, to go down to the border and to try to help sort all of that out, to try to stem the flow of people who want to come into the United States in greater numbers than we have the capacity to absorb is a very, very tough thing. And and while I will say that she can have a great impact on voting rights, I think immigration is going to be a pretty tougher uh, challenge. And to the extent that she volunteered to do that one, I'm sure President Biden was more than happy to give it to her. This is a bit of a cynical question, so I apologize in advance. But do you think that Biden or even Harris, for that matter, believe that she can actually come up with a solution here? Or is Harris taking point on uh, immigration more of a strategy to give Biden some cover on this very difficult issue? I certainly think more of the latter. Uh, I would imagine that Joe Biden probably said to himself and then perhaps to her, I will give you plenty of issues on which to, you know, which will benefit you politically, but I really need your help on this one. I am trying to do so many things in terms of restoring America's relations overseas, to rebuilding our economy, to dealing with COVID-19, that I really need you, Madam Vice President, to take the lead on immigration to work to try to figure something out on my behalf. So I, I think on this one, she's taking one for the team. And then to talk about a couple uh, more recent stories about Harris and her office specifically, when Biden chose Harris as his running mate, many commentators said he had followed the number one rule when it comes to selecting a vice president, which is, of course, first, do no harm. But In the past couple of weeks, Harris and her office have brought some negative attention to the White House. Uh, First, there was a story in Axios about suggesting that there were tensions between the West Wing and those running Harris's office. And then Politico also published a story that was describing a toxic work environment in Harris's office. Uh, One staffer even described it as abusive. Kamala Harris's advisors have pushed back against these stories. They've dismissed them as rumors and insisted that they have a smooth running operation. So in your experience, can that sort of negative press attention on the vice president affect the relationship between the vice president and the president? It can affect relations between the president and the vice president, but it doesn't have to. The operation under, under Vice President Gore in the office of the vice president had its own challenges, frankly. Uh, it was not the smoothest operation that I've ever seen. So that in and of itself did not affect relations between uh, President Clinton and Vice President Gore. Where it can become a problem is if there is competition and tension between the staff of the president and the staff of the vice president. And that can sometimes um, get to the point where it rises to the level of the two principles, the president and the vice president. I am sure that the president's staff will do everything they can 
to avoid that because that is one headache that the President of the United States, whoever it is, does not need. Looking more broadly at vice presidents running for president one day, do you think that Al Gore's time as vice president really helped or hindered his run for presidency? And with the obvious caveat that the 2000 election had many peculiarities that may not affect Kamala Harris, what potential lessons are there for Kamala Harris from Gore's experience if she does indeed decide to run for president again? Well, I do believe that um, Al Gore's tenure as vice president helped him run for president. Because you see, when you serve on Capitol Hill, in either the House or Senate, and Gore served uh, in both, uh, you think very much like a legislator. You talk about bills and bill numbers and congressional process, all of this stuff that people do not understand. And that's why often lawmakers cannot really make the jump to campaigning as a chief executive with a national vision. Gore used to refer to himself in the White House as a recovering legislator. And I think that while he was trying to be funny, there was something to that. And that would be perhaps uh, the advice that um, I would give Kamala Harris in terms of thinking about Al Gore. You have to think to yourself, what is my vision for the country And I think Kamala Harris, among the most important things she needs to do is discard the legislator in her from her tenure in the Senate and think of herself as a prospective candidate with a national vision of how she is going to make America from coast to coast a better place. Larry, we always ask our guests on the show a what else question. So I know one of your main focuses on foreign policy, and I wanted your thoughts on another critically important issue, which is the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. The Pentagon said this week that the withdrawal is more than 90 percent complete already, about two months before Joe Biden's September 11th deadline to complete the withdrawal. But Afghan officials say the withdrawal is being rushed to fit a political timeline and that that has left the country vulnerable to Taliban advances. So do you think Biden has mishandled the withdrawal? I am troubled by what I'm seeing. I certainly understand the sentiment to move on. We have been going at this now for 20 years, but... We first got in because we were trying to crack down uh, on al-Qaeda, which had a safe haven under the Taliban in Afghanistan. We have been trying for much of the last 20 years to build a government there to do what's known as nation building and you know, make Afghanistan uh, a safer and better place for the Afghan people. The Taliban are clearly going to take over by all estimates over the course of the coming months. The estimates are, you know, as soon as six months to a year, and maybe it'll even be sooner than that. And then Afghanistan is going to once again look like it looked on the eve of 9-11. So I am a fan of much of what Joe Biden has been doing 
uh, both at home and abroad. But I am troubled by the U.S. withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, uh, how quickly it's taken place and what it may mean for the future. Lawrence Haas, foreign policy columnist and former communications director for Vice President Al Gore. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Well, thanks very much for having me. And that's all from me this week. Make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly as Heather Stewart looks at the implications of the government's decision to lift most COVID restrictions on July 19th. I will be with you for the rest of July, so I'd love for you to send me any questions or comments about what you'd like to hear me cover over the next few weeks. You can send me an email at podcastattheguardian.com or tweet me directly on Twitter. My handle there is at Joan E. Grieve. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer was Danielle Stevens, and I'm Joni Grieve. Please stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.